Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarowski show. As I speak, it is uh, Friday, May 26, 2023. I am just laughing. I cannot help myself, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, every time I contemplate the debacle uh, that Ron DeSantis and Elon Musk made out of Ron DeSantis's uh, announcement that he's running for president, I just have to laugh. I just have to chuckle. Uh, it just exposes the utter fraudulence of absolutely everything Elon Musk uh, and Ron DeSantis stand for. And, and momentarily, folks, it makes me really think of the question I asked my distinguished guest the last time he was on the show, or maybe it was the time before he was on the show. It's a question I ponder many times when I'm, I'm walking at late at night. If I had to choose and I had no other options, if I couldn't duck and dodge with a right end, who would I vote for? Ron DeSantis or Donald John Trump? And in the past, I've said, oh, well, <laughs> Ron DeSantis. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not know. <laughs> right now, like every week, every day, it's like a different. No, I think for the last three or four days in a row, it's been Donald John Trump. Because I believe that Ron DeSantis is a bigger fraud than Donald Trump. Let me explain why I say this. I will get to it in a little of this headline. We'll partly explain it. Donald Trump is a freaking fraud, but he does it in such a way to sort of suggest, yeah, I know I'm a fraud. I can't help it if you're dumb enough to believe me. <laughs> but in that way, it's like a great tradition of fraudsters uh, in, the, in the United States. You know what I mean? Grifters in the United States. Like people who openly uh, just revel in their fraud, fraudulence. Ron DeSantis, like, apparently believes in the BS that he's throwing at the American population. And to this point, I will now read a headline uh, from today's New York Times from the business section. This is in the business section, ladies and gentlemen, where they get the business geeks out there just reporting the news, no agenda in particular. Uh, here's the headline. Exploding Melon drew more views than DeSantis' Twitter event. 
Here's the lead. Within hours of Governor Ron DeSantis announcing his presidential run, participants in the audio event celebrated the achievement. David Sachs, a venture capitalist who moderated the Twitter conversation, declared it, quote, by far the biggest room ever held on social media. After the event, DeSantis said in a podcast interview that he thought by later that day, quote, probably over 10 million people would watch the event called uh, would, would have watched the event. They were wrong on both counts. According to Twitter metrics, the audio event, which was initially mired by more than 20 minutes of technical glitches, garnered a high of about 300,000 concurrent listeners. Uh, as of Thursday, a total of 3.4 million people had listened to it on space, 3.4 3. 4 million suckers. Those figures fell short of reaching 10 million people and were far from being the biggest room on social media. Consider that a 2016 Facebook Live event featuring two BuzzFeed employees placing rubber bands around a watermelon until it exploded drew more than 800,000 concurrent viewers and a total of 5 million views within hours of its conclusion. The 2000 is... <laughs> The 2017 live stream of a pregnant giraffe on YouTube brought in 5 million viewers a day. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you right now, that pregnant giraffe could defeat Ron DeSantis in the Republican primary for president right now. That pregnant giraffe, by the way, <laughs> I'm in awe of that pregnant giraffe. I think about what I try to do to get 5 million people. In other words, everything Ron DeSantis and his cronies said, is as made up as anything Donald Trump says. What a fraud. All right, without further ado, I will turn things over to my distinguished guest. I know he is just dying to take the deep dive uh, into the presidential campaign of Ron DeSantis. So distinguished guests, introduce yourself and then just take it away. All right. It's great to be here, Ben. Uh, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, columnist of Newsweek. And um, I am not a fan of Ron DeSantis, so uh, it's been a great week for me. <laughs> what a knucklehead. Good Lord. So <laughs> you can tell that Ron, that Ron DeSantis' campaign, um, I believe that we're calling him Meatball Ron now. So uh, Meatball's campaign is being run by people who spend too much time on right-wing Twitter. Um and who believe in the like great man theory of Elon Musk and how he's going to transform Twitter, um, even though he has essentially broken Twitter and uh, is in the process of destroying journalism by driving down traffic to all these websites. Um, he decided that he would hold his announcement on Twitter spaces, which uh, if you're like me, like a normal human being with a, with a pulse and you can fog up a mirror, this is probably the first time you've ever heard of Twitter spaces. Um, and that's a good thing, you know, because it's not working very well. Um, the world does not need Twitter spaces. You don't need Twitter spaces. I don't need Twitter spaces. Ron DeSantis clearly doesn't need Twitter spaces. Um, but that's where he went. Um, that's where he went to do the announcement. <laughs> it's like, um, it's like if I ran for president and said I was going to announce it on live journal. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of well, live journals, like a early social media website from the kind of, early to mid aughts, um, where I did a lot of confessional blogging. Um, if you can find my live journal, I congratulate you because I'm not going to tell you the handle. <laughs> anyway, um, it didn't work because Elon Musk, a uh, man who believes that he's going to reach Mars um, 
doesn't know how to hold a conference call with his own technology because that's what this was. Okay, uh, but this was not a. This was in a like a video feed. Like people were getting audio <laughs> of Ron DeSantis. Okay, like we're talking like 1950s technology here. Okay, um, you know the the joke about these these the, the Silicon Valley guys where they're like, okay, we're going to disrupt transit. What we're going to do is we're going to build a tunnel <laughs> and we're going to build a large vehicle and put people on it and take them from destination to destination. Yeah. You're like, so a train. Yeah. You've invented a train. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Meatball gets on Twitter Spaces, and for 25 minutes, no one can hear him. Um, because it's like the ultimate. It's like a stress nightmare. I, I mean, if you're if you're Ron DeSantis, um, and if you're like everybody who went to college, you have the same nightmare about um, you took a class all semester and you forgot about it, and then you got to show up and take the final at the end of the semester. This has to be like the stress nightmare for people who run for president. <laughs> Right. It's like you get you forget about your announcement. Like oh, I forgot to go. Uh, the microphone doesn't work. The crowd doesn't show up. Or you go to like the world's dumbest social media website to announce your campaign, and it and it's just it's just like a brick. Like there's like tens of thousands of people trying to tune in to listen to your announcement, and they can't do it because you made the wrong choice. <laughs> so the glitch aside, um, you know the speech was just boilerplate, you know, right wing culture war stuff that I don't understand what the general i don't even i mean i understand what the primary election audience for this stuff is but i don't understand what the general election audience for this stuff is um you know he at one point he went after um the accreditation mafia do you know what that means um it's about colleges i guess um the woke banking (laughs) i just i feel like i just don't feel like tens of millions of people are waking up every morning thinking about what's wrong with America and going like chase is too woke. <laughs> you know what I mean? The woke mind virus has gotten into my 401. <laughs> who cares? You know, like who cares? Yeah. Who cares if your banking is woke or unwoke or a sleeper? Like it just, just get out of town, man. So it's like, it's all of these like jog whistles to the, to the weird, you know, 4chan right on, on Twitter. Um, you know, like the, the sort of like bow tied mafia, of, uh, of people who think way too much about trans people and, you know, stuff like this where, um, they've just, uh, they've gotten themselves twisted into this knot of anger and resentment against, uh, against LGBTQ people. Um, and they think that that's popular and it's not, I mean, that's, that's the bottom line is that like what Ron DeSantis really needs is a time machine, um, to go back to like 2021 when he was popular for a reason, um, I don't happen to agree with the reason, but the reason was that he was the guy uh, who opened things up faster than everybody else and sent the kids back to school without masks and a bunch of people moved to Florida for that and they got what they wanted. Um, and that's why Ron DeSantis was reelected by 20 points. Um, not because he's like in a war with Disney <laughs> that he's losing um, and, and not because of the don't say gay stuff and not because of this um, this culture war nonsense that he's uh, that he's immersed himself in, I think that he's talked himself into believing is responsible for his victory, which was, by the way, the same almost the same margin of victory as Marco Rubio when he was reelected to the Senate. Uh, but DeSantis thinks he's cracked some kind of code um, with this, like you know, CRT uh, grooming um, drag race, uh, sorry, not drag, uh, uh, drag show uh, 
panic, right? It's a moral panic, right? He's, he's yeah. stoking a, a national moral panic. He's the ringleader of it. Um, and choosing Elon Musk, who's, if anybody has a mind virus, <laughs> by the way, it's Elon Musk. You know what I mean? Like this guy, just if you, if you have the misfortune of following him on Twitter and seeing what he's up to, it's like he's constantly like going up to like fascists and being like, yeah, man, right on, you know? Uh, just yeah. just figures of the far right that are that should be fringe, should be uh, marginalized, should probably be thrown off of Twitter. He's in there being like, "Yeah, man. I mean, there's a there's a global conspiracy of Jewish elites again. You know, like this kind of stuff, just crazy stuff, right? Yeah. He's clearly an anti-Semite, homophobe, bigot. Um, and this is where Ron DeSantis goes uh, to announce his campaign. And to me, more than the glitch itself, uh, more than the technical disaster, the choice of Musk is indicative of where this campaign is going. Okay. Like this is a All dude right. that's going to try to run to the right of Donald Trump on culture. Um, right. And um, best of luck, <laughs> best of best of luck meatball. I don't think it's going to work, but um, you know, I don't I think Donald Trump was going to be president either. So, so what do I know? All right. There's a lot that you offered in, uh, in that riff. Let's break it down. Uh I guess I'll uh, I'll start with this point. I could start with any of them. Uh, Ron DeSantis is proud of the fact uh, that uh, he opened up his state uh, before, like Illinois did, in terms of COVID. Uh, but I would just say his uh, war on masks and uh, is very similar to his war on woke. And it's not about policy. It's not about governance. It's about taking a stand against a symbol that MAGA hates. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, th- I see there's parallels to it. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it's a, it's frightening in, in many respects. And that's why I keep coming back to, like, who's worse, Trump or uh, DeSantis? Trump, at least as president, supported the effort to develop uh, a vax. The the vaccine, which has essentially uh, put this virus at bay and enabled us to move on with life. Trump at least existed in a world of reality that was real enough to know he had to do that. I do not know if Ron DeSantis exists in that world. He panders so much to the hardcore right that it's hard to know, David, what he really believes in. You, you, you get what I'm saying? I, and how far he'll, he'll be willing to go to just continue pandering. Uh, will he just fall off the face of the earth uh, as we know it? And that brings us to Elon Musk. Elon Musk is arguably one of the, the most dangerous people in this country right now because he purchased Twitter. It kind of seems to me like it was like what they call a loss leader in, in order to ingratiate himself with the same crowd that DeSantis is pandering to. He's willing to destroy a company, spend hundreds of millions of dollars. He's got a freaking fortune. It's obviously he can absorb the loss in order to have an audience of millions from the microphone that he controls and he does it uh, in the guise that he's defending free speech as he fires employees who dare to defy him on his work at 
home work at the office edicts. I mean, the whole thing is just a mass of contradictions. You can't take seriously anything they do except they're pandering to the worst instincts uh, in, in our country right now. Uh, I laugh at it a lot. It's hard not to laugh at their utter incompetence. Um, at the same time, it's freaking frightening. It's more scary than Trump. <laughs> and I realize Trump's a fascist who tried to, like, ar- twist the arms of Congress into making him emperor. I know. So it's really, the like, <laughs> it's really hard to say that DeSantis is scarier than Trump. But at the moment, I feel that DeSantis is scarier than Trump because I think, as bizarre as this is going to sound, Donald Trump is more grounded in reality than Ron DeSantis is. And he, definitely Elon Musk. Elon Musk is just all about making money for himself and having power for himself. Your thoughts on this notion of Ron DeSantis being less grounded in reality than Donald Trump? So here's where I see the key distinction between DeSantis and Trump right now. Um, And that is like, it does have something to do with reality. Okay. Um, And I think Trump is who he is. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think there's any pretense with Donald, with Donald J. Trump, right? (laughs) Like he's, he, he, he's not out there like pretending to be a man of the people. um, But, but secretly goes home and eats steaks. He, (laughs) <laughs> he's not hiding mistakes. You know what I mean? He lives in a golden tower, right? Like, um, he lives in a country club. This is a man that lives in a country club. Okay. Um, and he goes out there and he's like, I know I'm rich. That means I can't be bought, you know, or like, like the weird rationalizations that he makes to, to position himself as a man of the people, um, are nevertheless, I think an authentic representation of who Donald Trump is. Okay. Um, Donald Trump is like a, like a brain addled old Fox news grandpa who got radicalized because, because Barack Obama was mean to him, um, has always been like a racist piece of garbage, um, was a racist piece of garbage on the campaign and a racist piece, racist piece of garbage as the president. Um, but he's not out there like pretending to be someone that he's not. Um, and so what you like, kind of what you see is what you get with Donald Trump. Right. And and what you see is very bad. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Very bad. Very disturbing that Donald Trump would be become president again. Um, I'm, I am gravitating towards maybe Trump is the preferred alternative here just because DeSantis <laughs> is such a sniveling little fraud, um, that I, <laughs> he scares me more because he is an elite masquerading a- as a man of the people. And he refuses to admit, like he refuses to see the irony or, or to acknowledge the reality that he's like a Harvard, Harvard trained little twerp who was a jag who who tortured people, um, during the war on terror. But now he's out there like, uh, making war on, on drag Queens and stuff. Like, um, it's just, um, he gives off this, this vibe, this aura of someone who will say anything and do anything and hurt anyone to, to attain power. Right. Even people that I think like probably personally, he has nothing against. Right. Like, um, circa 2014 if you if you cornered ron DeSantis in the halls of congress god help you um and you were like you know what do you you're like you cornered him after um obergefell like legalized gay marriage like what do you what do you think about all this stuff you know i don't think that ron DeSantis would have been like they're, they're grooming our children um to to be trans and gay and uh like i just don't think that i just don't think that in his heart 
he actually cares about any of this stuff, right? Like in his heart, he is what he was in Congress, which is he's just a he's just a standard issue, um, you know, a swamp creature who wants to starve the government. Um, you know, he's uh, he didn't get on the cover of the book, <laughs> Young Guns with Paul Ryan and those guys, <laughs> right? But that's yeah, who he was. Yeah. I mean, he was just a, he was a Paul Ryan clone um, until he became governor. And, um, and then all of a sudden in 2021, when it looks like Glenn Youngkin won the, the Virginia governorship by running against critical race theory, a term, you know, a, a term that has no actual <laughs> meaning to most of these people anyway, but, but the narrative that like Youngkin capitalized on, uh, anti-CRT backlash, um, so it can't be a backlash against something that 98% of the population can't define, but like a backlash against CRT. DeSantis and his advisors seem to have decided um, that the that the ticket to national fame and fortune in the presidency was to go over the top with all of this. Um, you know, again, we call it culture war stuff, but it's really um, it's really just the same American story over and over again, right? Like, um, who are the weakest marginalized people that we can oppress? Um, how can we roll back voting rights for Black people? How can we make this a miserable state for women to be in? Um, how can we make life hell um, for LGBTQ people? Um, and that's what that's what DeSantis represents at this point. Um, I, I think somebody on Twitter said, "Like, do you understand that like Ron DeSantis as president would make life like a living hell for for LGBTQ people for the next four years?" I mean, like that's what you know. That's what that's where this is headed. Um, and what disturbs me about DeSantis. Um, is I, I think that he's in some ways more sinister than Trump in that respect, right? Like he's a, he's a demagogue who is willing to sacrifice people uh, in their rights and their future, people that he like heretofore had nothing much against um, for the sake of, of kowtowing to the GOP primary electorate. Um, and so I guess it's like, do you prefer Trump's authentic hatred or DeSantis's inauthentic hatred? Um, the one thing about Trump that I think is more dangerous than DeSantis is that Trump, I think, commands the legitimate uh, loyalty and obeisance of his followers. And he legitimately yeah. delights and, and titillates them. Whereas I think most people look at DeSantis, like when they actually... I think that there's a there's a legend of Ron DeSantis that a lot of conservatives bought into um, until the moment that they hear him speak. Um, and the moment that he speaks, you're like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wait, this is the guy like the donors are like, we wrote this guy a what check for how much money? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> can we still donate to Tim Scott? Like, I don't know. It's, I don't think this guy has the juice, right? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so, uh. the, so that's, you know, that's where I'm at with this in my headspace, Trump DeSantis, Trump DeSantis. It's like, I think Trump is more dangerous in the sense of like commanding the loyalty of people. I think DeSantis is actually worse on some of these policies, right? Like, I think I'm more fearful of what DeSantis is going to do, um, about m women and abortion, reproductive rights, um, you know, harassing um, gay and lesbian and, and, and trans folks um, all day long, every day as president. That's what it's going to be about. And so it's really a pick your poison thing. Um, but the, the reality is that DeSantis is 40, 30 
points behind Trump right now. Um, and he's going to like, really the only way forward for DeSantis here, um, is to get on the debate stage with Trump in that August debate, uh, which I believe is the first Republican debate and, and somehow figure out a way to take him out and best of luck to you. Right. Because, (laughs) you know, you had 20 people in 2016, try to take him out one after the other. Um, and, 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 and Trump just cut him off at the knees, every single one of them. He even, remember this, he even enlisted other people to cut off his rivals at the knees for him. Um, like famously when Chris Christie humiliated Marco Rubio on national television and then bowed out of the race. (laughs) Yes. There it is again. The road speech, uh, remember? The memorized speech, Marco Rubio. uh, Yeah. And, uh, the, um, yo, Donald Trump now uh, with with debates like Donald Trump at town halls. We talked about this the last time. He doesn't play by any of the rules. The notion of beating Donald Trump at a debate is ridiculous because to win a debate, uh, you have to follow the rules and regulations of a debate. Uh, And Donald Trump just talks over people. He answers whatever question he wants, uh, regardless of whatever question was asked. He mocks, he maligns. He, he just destroys the whatever shred of credibility and sanctity a debate has. So you can't possibly win. And that's what MAGA wants. They love it. And so uh, the notion of when you were going there, the notion of Ron DeSantis, quote unquote, winning a debate against Donald Trump is ridiculous. It, um, you can't beat Donald Trump in a Republican primary debate the same way Donald Trump can't win a general election debate. Donald Trump's performance in a general election debate will pretty much guarantee uh, that he will lose any presidential election he gets involved in unless he truly does figure out a way to steal it. He always talks about the other side, which is just projection. He's just trying to figure out a way how he can steal it. Uh, So, yeah, uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. Ron DeSantis is frightening uh, on many levels. MAGA is frightening on many levels. Uh, And... uh, I will say this before we move on to the next topic. I had a long conversation with um, a young political uh, strategist who comes on this show, and I call him our show, Steve Karecki. This this guy, his knowledge of elections, <laughs> David, it's it's, regard, it's remarkable. Okay, this kid is he like knows what's going on in every freaking state. Uh, in you know, like what's what's the latest out of Arizona, and uh, you know, and, and every. And he said, I've been meaning to tell you this, and I should have texted to you. He's coming on the show in a couple of weeks. We're going to do a state-by-state breakdown for prelim of 2024 Senate. He goes, I'm much more uh, bullish on the uh, the uh, Democratic uh, chances. I'm much more confident of the Democratic chances to hold the Senate in 2024, which goes against the grain of everything I believed when I looked at the map. Uh, and... Um, and part of it is because Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump have pushed, have pushed or have followed MAGA off the cliff. And he believes his analysis, like there's states in play that you would never think would be in play because they've gone too far. So that's just something to keep in mind as we move on to the next discussion. The debt ceiling. <laughs> Uh, and, um, your headline in your uh, latest Newsweek, uh, column pretty much says it all. Uh, and uh, let me, uh, I said I had this headline and I don't have it. Here we go. Um, 
here we go. What want food assistance? GOP says sell everything you own first. All right, take it away. Explain uh, what you're getting at there. Sure. I mean, this is the old canard about um, imposing work requirements on people to receive federal benefits, um, like SNAP benefits, you know, supplemental nutritional assistance program, um, things like uh, Medicaid, which is the health program for uh, for folks who fall below the poverty line. Um, and, uh, you know, Republicans have a point of leverage. I think it's a made up unconstitutional point of leverage, but uh, we talked about that last time. But they have a point of leverage, and when they get a point of leverage in our system, they use it to um, make life harder for working people and poor people. That's what they do. That's their um, it's a vehicle for the upward redistrib- redistribution of wealth. Um, and so one of the sticking points in the negotiations right now is is this very um, idea of, like, what are you going to require of people to to access these, these benefits? Um, and Republicans, of course, want to impose a requirement, for example, that you uh, you have to work uh, 20 hours a week, I believe, if you're under the age of 55 and you want to get Medicaid. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, I don't even know where to start with this stuff, right? Um, this is very similar to the means testing debate uh, that we've talked about on the show before, where um, you are you are playing to a kind of a, a popular belief in in the fairness of the system, right? Like, um, like there should be, you know, this is a very American, remember we've talked about how Americans are like policy liberals, but philosophical conservatives. Um, and people are like, did you get a free lunch? You know, like, Oh no handouts for me. Gotta pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Um, and so they, they, they invent these reasons to make our core social safety net programs more complicated, harder to get into, harder to access, harder to stay in and harder to navigate all under the pretext of fairness. Um, and it, a lot of it is aimed at the, at the working poor, right? Like people who are working full-time jobs, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, um, who resent that tier below them, right? Uh, who have resentments against the folks that can't find that work, can't hold down that work, um, have other kinds of problems, right? That, that are leading them to seek this assistance in the first place. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a classic, um, neoliberal boondoggle, what that has friends in the democratic centrist caucus. Um, and the, the reality is that just these things don't work. I mean, what, whatever you think of them philosophically, uh, it adds a, a large administrative cost burden to, um, to delivering the benefits to people. Um, the very complexity of the additional burdens drives people away and allows conservatives to say like, Oh, look, we got 50,000 people off snap, right? It worked. And it's like, well, the 50,000 people are off snap because they couldn't navigate the system. Right. Um, because, the, you know, on your application for SNAP benefits, people are, you, you, you ask people, like, do you have anything of value? That, uh, do you have anything that's worth more than $500 in your house? Um, do you have more than $2,500 in assets? If so, sorry, no SNAP benefits for you. Um, and it's like this, this, it's a, it's a humiliating, degrading process to access these benefits. They want to make it as humiliating, as degrading, as intrusive as possible so that people don't do it. Right. So people just choose to get by some other way or to end up on the street or, you know, whatever. I don't know. Um, I, I have the, you know, I've had the good fortune in my life of, of never being in the position um, to, to have to, to go on Medicaid or to have to, to get SNAP benefits. But um, I, I certainly know people who, who have 
um, had to go through the the horror of, of some of these requirements. Um, you know, it's it's all part of this class of of, of policies. You know, drug testing people who want to get uh, social safety benefits. Um, it's like you know what? Why don't you drug test Congress first, and we'll see where we are. But um, anyway, that's a big sticking point in the negotiations right now. You know, the <clears throat> I think the bigger picture looks a little bit better today than it did even a few days ago for for Democrats, right? I think um, McCarthy seems to be willing, to, at least from press reports, seems to be willing really willing to sign off on what if, what is effectively um, a, a freezing of federal discretionary spending for the next couple of years in exchange for like a like a basically a two-year lifting of the of the debt ceiling. Um, and uh, it's certainly not what progressives want or should want um, out of the out of the federal government. But in some ways, uh, we could make this deal now, we could make this deal when the next budget is coming. Um, the, the, the reality of having turned over control of a branch of government to the Republicans means that we're put in this position where we have to we have to beg borrow and steal. Um, just to fulfill our obligations to the to our to our creditors first of all, but but also to our key stakeholders. Um, and uh, so the the big mystery right now is like, okay, McCarthy seems to be willing. McCarthy seems to be negotiating a deal that's like going to be completely unacceptable to like at least two hundred Republicans, right? um, because the Republican maniacs are. It's not just the Freedom Caucus people. The Freedom Caucus people are distinguished not by their fiscal conservatism but by how nuts they are, right? Like yeah. just conspiracy infused, uh, you know, like they're all hanging out with Elon Musk um, and they have these like deranged uh, uh, culture war predilections. Um, but they're, they're not really that much more fiscally conservative than the rest of the Republican caucus, right? Like, which is, which is like 99% at this point, people who would have been cons- considered extremists in, in 1995. Um, and I simply don't know how McCarthy is going to get a deal that doesn't really have any meaningful cuts to anything through his own caucus, right? The big bone they're throwing um, their caucus right now is they're like, we're cutting $10 billion out of the IRS budget Um, because Biden Democrats put an extra $80 billion into the IRS to try to uh, roll up tax cheats and and go after these. uh, I mean, essentially, you know, essentially go after Donald Trump's friends, um, like rich people who are skating by without paying their fair share. Um, and they're going to cut that budget by one seventh and then present that as the, as the scalp. And I don't think that's going to cut it, to be honest with you. So, um, if McCarthy wants this deal, if what I'm reading in the press is correct and McCarthy wants that to be the deal, um, he's going to need virtually every Democrat in the house to sign on to it. Um, and even then I think he's looking at a problem of, um, of losing his speakership over it. Right. If he crosses the Freedom Caucus people, remember all the crazy pledges he made um, back in January to become <laughs> yeah. speaker? You know, it was like, I will cut spending to levels not seen since 1790. You know, just the crazy stuff, right? Just hallucinations. <laughs> um, yeah. He was like, I swear to God, uh, you know, we're going to roll back the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, the Freedom Caucus people were like, don't come to me with anything less than a full repeal of the ACA. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like these yeah. people are nuts. <laughs> Like they are nuts, oh, and he made them promises yeah. in January um, that he's about to betray in a pretty big way. Um, yeah. And so, I'm. This is it's it's just it's going to be a really interesting couple of weeks, Ben, um, because McCarthy's going to need to thread that needle. Biden is going to have to sell this to progressive Democrats if he wants them on board. Then they got to get it through the Senate, which the Democrats yeah. control, right? Um, and so 
I wouldn't be surprised if we defaulted at this point. I, I just, it's, it's really hard for me to see how that circle gets squared again, without one of the sort of like weird procedural maneuvers that we've talked about before. Um, Biden invoking the 14th amendment, which has a clause, um, preventing, uh, the public debt of the United States from being questioned, minting a trillion dollar coin, which is an idea that's been floated many times in the past to, to get around the debt ceiling. <laughs> I, I don't have a crystal ball, but this is just, you yeah. know, this, like the second they called the house for Republicans, I was like, okay, here we go. You know, yeah. another two years yeah. of, uh, uh, of brinkmanship and, uh, budget hostage taking and all this stuff that turns people off and everyone hates, no one enjoys, no one wins. We all lose. I don't mean to be too cynical. I've, I actually feel like we're doing pretty well in these negotiations. Um, whether we should you be know negotiating you, with them, another story, but like it could be going worse. That's, that's how, that's how I'll leave uh, it right now. Uh, got a couple of things I want to respond again, uh, to your riff, but right off the top, you know, in a weird way, the spectacle out of the Republicans, the MAGA core in, con- in Congress, uh, that run Congress, the House of Representatives, that, thank you again, New York Democrats, um, is n- not as bad <laughs> as I feared. And I believe in part it's because there's so much going on outside of Congress that is fill in the blanks bizarre, weird, crazy, insane, uh, scary. So we just got finished talking about the specter of Ron DeSantis, which is becoming more and more of a conversation until he is absolutely annihilated in in the polls. I mean, in the the first uh, primaries. But the ongoing reality show that is the life of Donald Trump the spectacle, David, I mean, one more time, he lost his sexual assault defamation case in New York to E. Jean Carroll. The jury sided with E. Jean Carroll. Within one week, he was repeating all the lies about E. Jean Carroll that got him sued in the first place. Like, <laughs> he just doesn't. The, he will be probably in the middle of a trial on uh, paying hush money to Stormy Daniels in New York City. That trial will be taking place while he's running against Ron DeSantis in these primaries. He will probably be indicted for his role in the insurrection. As we speak, there are insurrectionists getting 18 years sentences uh, for their crime. He will be running on on the platform that they are kind of like heroes who should be pardoned. So it's so inma- it's so insane. The world outside of Congress is so insane that it's hard to like pay attention to the insanity of Congress. It's been an ongoing spectacle since 2016 November. It didn't end in 2020. <laughs> Once again, Joe Biden will run for re-election as I'm alive. You're going to vote for me. <laughs> Look, <laughs> see the breath on the window of the glass? <laughs> Folks. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's why, you know, I think most Americans, very few Americans have come close to paying attention to this stuff as much as we do, or our listeners who are hardcore. 
but um, most Americans just can't pay attention to it because it's just so insane. Uh, anyway, then you also said something, and I really want you to go into this. Um, you may have done this before. I just don't remember the specific riff, so I apologize. Americans are uh, policy liberals, but uh, philosophically conservative. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean, so this is this comes out of some political science and some survey research, um, and you know, some of this depends on how you word things. Okay, but when you when you ask people like, do you believe um, that people should be guaranteed the right to to universal high quality healthcare? People say yes. Um, when you ask them, um, you know, do you, do you believe in, uh, in, in using the power of the state to, to prevent climate change, things like that. They say yes. Um, on a lot of the hot button issues of American politics, do you want to tax the rich? Should there be a wealth tax? Yes. Um, you know, uh, Americans respond in a way that's closer to the Democratic position than the Republican position. Not on everything, okay? But on, I would say, the lion's share of most contentious public policy issues if you believe the survey research, you believe the polling from Pew and Gallup and whoever, Democrats are on the right side of public opinion more often than not. Okay. Again, not every single time, but more often than not, Democrats are on the on, on, on the right side of public opinion. Um, and so, and so, when you take each issue, you know, one by one, right? Like, um, should there be regulations on banks uh, in terms of like how much they leverage themselves and risk their assets? It's the democratic policy issue, but when you when you ask people philosophical questions um, about life and like the economy and things like that, they tend to give much more conservative answers. Okay, um, like when you ask people a question like, um, "Do you think that if if you how did Clinton put it? If you work hard and play by the rules, can do you can, can you get ahead in life?" People are like, "Yeah," like overwhelming majorities of people believe that if you work hard. Um, and, and keep your head down, your nose to the grindstone, um, follow all the rules, um, you don't pay off any porn stars, you, you will get ahead, you know? Um, and they believe in the mythology of meritocracy. Like, they believe in the American dream story of, uh, of arriving on our shores penniless and then, uh, you know, um, opening a bodega and, and becoming rich. Uh, they believe that there's much more social mobility than there is. Um, that's, a, that's a big overarching framing of like a lot of things um, to understand about American politics is that people believe that this is a different country than it is, right? Like they believe that, um, uh, that unfairness can be overcome with, with grit and determination. Um, and so appeals to that conservative philosophy can be very effective for conservatives. Right? Um, when a conservative gets out there and says like, you know, um, I don't want people sitting around like watching Netflix and, and playing Call of Duty um, and, and sucking up a bunch of benefits when they could be working. That that appeals to, to close to a supermajority of people. Right? People are like, yeah, man, you know, um, yeah, you, 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 you want benefits, you should work for them. Right. Um, sort of, in, again, appealing to our intrinsic and I think quite conservative sense of of fairness and hard work um and what's what's possible in the united states as opposed to what's possible elsewhere so that's that's what i mean by it um 
this comes out, this comes from the work of a political scientist named, uh, named Matt Grossman. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I just invite you to go to, go to Pew, <laughs> pick any public policy issue that they're interested in. Um, and, and, and I think you'll see, I think you'll see this truism come to life. Like, you know, issue polling suggests, um, that like the green new deal and, and, and universal healthcare, uh, single payer healthcare should be like a, just a gangbusters political winner. Right. But then conservatives come back in with messaging. Right. And the messaging, messaging is like, again, philosophical conservatives are like, we don't think we don't want to rely on the government for our well-being. The government is a bad word in America. I wish it wasn't right, but it is. Um, and so when we're out there talking about like universal access to healthcare and, um, all the inefficient, all the inefficiencies of our system. Like, for example, <laughs> right now I'm trying to figure out which of our insurances will pay for our daughter's stay in the, the intensive care unit the few days after she was born. Um, and we're just getting bat, batted back and forth between different bureaucracies. It's just the most maddening. Like, you could not gather a group of geniuses and order them to design <laughs> the stupidest system yeah. to administer healthcare possible and come up with something worse than what we have in America. Right. Um, but when you tell people like, do you want the government to take over? Do you want government to play a bigger role in your healthcare? People are like, no, God, no, <laughs> yeah. no, I wow. want the vultures at Aetna, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I want a middle manager at blue cross blue shield to decide my healthcare. Um, yeah. so it's just something to be aware of always that even sometimes when we are, when we really truly are on the right side of what we understand to be public opinion about a certain issue, conservatives can come back and frame it in a way that appeals to that conservative philosophical nature of a lot yeah. of Americans and then win the argument anyway, even and, and oh, convince yeah. people not to want something yeah. that they actually want. Well said. And I just going tying things together, uh, Elon Musk's, uh, his, he's, he's at, uh, sort of having a battle, uh, with Twitter employees, uh, about staying at home versus working at the office. I believe also with Tesla employees, uh, he's a big believer uh, in going to work at the office for whatever reason. I have no idea. I'm sure it's related to real estate. Who knows? Uh, anyway, he is, so he frames it uh, as if, you know, if you're a uh, truck driver, you can't stay at home. You go to work. you got to go to work. you got to drive that truck. You know, if you're, I don't know, fill in the blanks of, of all these uh, blue collar jobs where you have to go a factory worker, you have to go to the factory. You can't stay at home. This, this is a spoiled pamper class of people. And <laughs> the framing of it is so bizarre coming from this, the richest man in the world, you know, who will work from wherever he is. Okay. It reserves the right to fly here or there, you know, uh, I think it was at the Super Bowl and uh, a recent NBA uh, playoff game. Okay. You know, I didn't see him going to the office. Uh, but uh, but your point is very well taken. It's the framing of the issue uh, by the GOP and, of course, a gerrymandering. Let's not forget gerrymandering uh, that has given him this advantage uh, and of the Electoral College, which is so twisted and weird. Uh, so let's not forget the big three, David. Framing, gerrymandering, electoral college. Ah, Supreme Court, let's add that. Lifetime seats of the Supreme Seems like you and I have had the same conversation in 2017. All right. Uh, 
let's close it down um, with a little discussion of Dianne Feinstein. Oh, my beloved Democrats are so hapless and so twisted and weird in their own way. Uh, we've talked a lot about this on other shows about how, how Dianne Feinstein just won't step down. Uh, Hillary Clinton joined the, the chorus saying she shouldn't step down. She should stay forever. Just shows you why Hillary Clinton lost in some ways. Um, and then use Ruth Bader Ginsburg as an example to somehow or other support her thesis that Diane Fine. That Hillary, I just want to tell you, Hillary Clinton, that is, you're arguing against yourself. That's an example of definitely somebody absolutely positively having to step down. What is the what is going on with Democrats, David? That I mean, you were advocating term limits. Uh, as a solution. I'm not even certain that would be an adequate solution. Uh, but anyway, the floor is yours. What is with Democrats and just clinging to office long, long after it's not in their best interest or their party's best interest or their country's best interest? The best, the best analogy I can come up with is think about your workplace. Um, and, and, you know, in, in university, you know, you can work until you're 80. You can work until you're 90. You can keep teaching classes. There's no law against it. And university can't really force you to retire. Um, and so you end up in these situations where some people are teaching long past when they should should have retired. Um, and it's their colleagues who really should be pushing them out. But they're not because they've been friends for 50 years. <laughs> right? It's like you've got a workplace in which your workplace friends are your whole life. Um, and that actually is the case for people in DC, right? Like DC people are a lot like professors and that professors largely have moved away from their homes to be a professor at that place. And they make their friends in the workplace. And I actually think that's the case in Congress frequently as well. Um, and so you have a bunch of people who've been friends with Diane Feinstein for decades who, who think back to, you know, her, her time as mayor of San Francisco and all, you know, all her, her career accomplishments, um, and they think it's unreasonable and unfair uh, to ask her to resign when she won election and she's serving out her term. Um, and and so Hillary Clinton sticking up for Feinstein is just this classic sort of like, um, don't mess with my friends kind of politics, right? Um, I think there's some people that think there's some kind of like misogynist undertones to, to trying to push Feinstein out of her seat or uh, ageism. Um, and of course, you know, there are some people who can be 89 and are perfectly lucid and, and can do their jobs. They're obviously at massively elevated risk of, of different kinds of illnesses and things like that. But, but not everyone um, is cognitively impaired uh, like, like Feinstein is. Um, and it's just been impossible seemingly for the democratic establishment to, to throw her under the bus. I mean, like, did you see the story about how Pelosi's daughter is like one of the chief aides, like propping her up on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, there was this incredibly disturbing interview that she did um, after she came back to the Senate in which she was cornered by a reporter. And and she was like, what are you talking about? I've been here the whole time. I've been voting. You know, what are you talking about? Get your facts straight. Um, apparently, she didn't just have shingles. She had brain shingles. Okay. Um, and, and so she's obviously just not, she's not fit for office anymore. Okay. Um, she's, um, 
she's infirm, right? Um, there's, there's no shit, you know, we're all going to end up in the same place, Ben, right? Like there's no, there's no shame in it, right? She's an elderly woman. She's had a great career. Um, but to me, this is an example of a couple of things, right? Like one massive elite failure within the democratic party in 2018, not to get behind whoever was running against her. Um, I think the person that did end up running against her has, has run into some, some ethical problems, (laughs) Kevin DeLeon. Um, so he turned out to be a knucklehead too. Right. But the point is like, the party should have coalesced again around someone uh, to 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 take her out in in, um, in the in that weird top two primary system they have in California, and they couldn't do it. Like they simply could not bring themselves to push her out of office. And that's I would understand that if you're if, if Diane, Diane Feinstein was 82 and she was the senior senator of uh, of Wisconsin, or she was the senior senator of uh, of North Carolina. Okay, fine, I I get it. Right, you don't think anybody else can win that seat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you could run the jacket that you see on the screen behind me in California and it would, it would win by 40 points. Like there's no, the Republicans want a Senate seat in California. Yeah. It's a zero stakes affair to get somebody younger and more competent in there. And so I, I wrote a piece that was like, we should, we should think about term limits again. And you would need to amend the constitution. So it's not like, uh, I'm not suggesting a practical plan that's going to happen next week. Um, but, uh, political scientists have long argued against term limits, um, because they say, all it does is empower the lobbyists and, and sort of professional aid class in whatever capital you're talking about. A lot of states have legislative term limits of, you know, four, six, eight years. Um, and it just creates this endless churn of legislators who don't know what they're doing, um, who are dependent on, on the, on the real, uh, deal makers in, in the town. I, I happen to think some of these arguments are overstated, but I understand, I understand the argument, right? Um, is you're you're taking away you're taking you're, you're taking out career legislators and you're opening them up to a partisan primary and then you get more ideologically minded people in there um, who have no experience governing and don't know how to put together, together a coalition they don't know how to log roll um, you know it's not like you just like go to DC and on day one you're like I'm going to pass some bills this is easy <laughs> it's actually I think the debt ceiling stuff is is evidence of how complicated it can be to make DC work in a meaningful way um, but but political scientists have always argued against short-term limits. And I, I would say, how about, five, how about five terms in the Senate? That's 30 years. You know, that's plenty of time <laughs> to get to know how the Senate works. You know? If you you're can't figure it out in 28 yourself, years, David, then like, you're not very that. good at your job. So yeah. <laughs> um, it was more of a think piece that's like, <laughs> Feinstein is just representative of a problem of an American political class that sticks around too long. Right. Like you've got Feinstein, you've got these like um, old dead ghosts on the Supreme Court imposing their moral vision from the 1930s on us. Um, you've got we're going to have a presidential election between, um, you know, two uh, uh, <laughs> two guys pushing pushing 80 years old. No one wants to see one it. over 80. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so anyway, um, it, you know, the, again, nobody can force Feinstein to resign, but it, it's like it's shocking to me that like Chuck Schumer is in, in a closed door meeting with her right now being like, look, we're going to throw you under the bus tomorrow. So you can either get out of the way or we can do it. That's up to you. Yeah. Um, I, um, well, it's, uh, listen, um, 
I mean, the the Democratic hold on the on the Senate is so tenuous. I, I feel sorry for Chuck Schumer every day. He's got to deal with Mansion, Cinema, and Feinstein, and uh, <laughs> the three horsemen of the apocalypse. You know? Oh my god! <laughs> and he needs all three of them to hold on to the Senate. So. I know it's unlikely that Diane Feinstein, out of anger, will become a Republican and start, you know, voting with the Republican. But anything's possible. Uh, I, I, I'm all over the map when it comes to term limits, uh, and uh, generally, I'm against them. But at one moment of weakness, David, I um, I signed Pat Quinn's petitions, former Governor Pat Quinn. Uh, Unfortunately, I do remember uh, that. Yeah. Yes. To have a referendum in the city of Chicago on imposing term limits for mayor. Uh, And my argument at the time was essentially twofold. One, it would annoy the hell out of Rom. So, yeah, I'm for it. Uh, (laughs) Which I I realize is not Civics 101. Uh, And uh, the second one was that since Chicagoans had up to then proved completely incapable of voting for anybody other than an autocratic bully, uh, we should just like at least, I don't know, try to limit the the damage those bullies could do. Uh, And by the way, this is how devious uh, it is. That that, um, Quinn gathered like thousands and thousands of signatures. The question made the ballot. Uh, The voters voted on it. But Rom tied it so up into uh, uh, knots uh, on the uh, with his appeals and his lawsuits against it that they've never revealed. We may have term limits. The voters may have voted for term limits, but they've never revealed the outcome. So I'm all over the map with it. But I think it's a sign of desperation when uh, Democrats are like, we got to do something because our leaders are so clueless. Dianne Feinstein cannot vote uh, uh, on the uh, sit in the Judiciary Committee. So therefore, the Democrats can't pass any judges. They can't approve the judges that uh, Biden has appointed. You're losing in the long term. Everything you want and believe in, you're losing because Dianne Feinstein won't leave. You know, we lost the same with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She died in office because she refused to leave office when we had a Democratic senator Excuse me, Democratic president, Democratic Senate. I, I just see Democrats doing the same thing over and over again. And so it's almost like, David, you're you're so frustrated. You're oppo- All right, we're going to take away your ability to destroy our country through. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's such a sign of desperation, you know? It's not great. Um, Speaking of knowing when to leave, Ben, I got to go get my kid from 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 preschool. So, <laughs> all right, that's a good a segue as any. Uh, David Ferris, thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Okay? I'm looking forward to it, Ben. All right, take care. All right, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Drusky. Take care, everybody. 